When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Marcus Shepherd. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Stuart. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You're very welcome. Did you read that for script? <laughs> you can let go of my arm now. <laughs> I think Marcus is more than capable to uh, hold his own on the podcast. And that uh, wasn't my arm. <laughs> uh, we're going to do five great British horror films with Marcus. But before we do, let's let let Marcus introduce himself first. He's a He's a filmmaker. I'm I'm based in Leighton, which is East London, Waltham Forest, and Marcus is not just a guest, he's also a friend who lives up the road. A colleague. A colleague as well, even. A peer in the cottage industry of the <laughs> film industry, that is the film industry. Um, but do you want to talk about, you did your first feature film last summer? It was it was a year ago this week we started filming it, yeah. And um, What's that called? It's called The Tricycle Thief, and it's a children's film. Yeah. And I've been working in film and TV and commercials for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got a couple of big cathedral-type films ready to go, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, I thought I'd get one going. So about a year ago, we were um, a friend of mine and me run Stowe Film Lounge, which is an independent mobile cinema. Mm-hmm. We've shown about 500 films in the last seven years, and I said to Nick... Let's make a film. So we went and made a film in about a month. And, and what was you, what's what's a good synopsis of Tricycle Thief? Uh, it's a children's film in the style very much the Children's Film Foundation, which, if you don't know, was a government-sponsored, Edie Levy funded the uh, film foundation for about forty years. And children's films were made regularly for children's audiences. Mm. They were about forty-five to fifty minutes in duration. And children from sort of probably nineteen fifty to about nineteen seventy-five would have experienced these films, watched them regularly in the cinema. And it ended about 1985. What would be like a classic example of that of that oeuvre? Um, the thing is, they're not that well known as films, but the films themselves, people that've seen them, remember the actors. Um, mm. You've got the Man from Nowhere, which is a very famous, celebrated early 70s sort of ghost story. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good point actually. The actual canon of them, there's about 250, I think, were made, but it's the kids that saw them always remember them. They seem to be a reflection of a time of culture which is now past. So we want to make a film in that tradition with lots of actors. Was it very much the kind of film you would see on a matinee on a Saturday yeah, in your it, local it, fleet? exactly. It would be a Saturday matinee. Some of it end up on the TV later on, but for most children it was a Saturday matinee experience or Saturday morning. They were dumped there by their kids, sorry, by their parents, yeah. and ended up watching these films. And I was the Mayfair in Whitefield. That's yeah, where I was exactly. dumped. And like for David Putnam, we interviewed him. He was like an Odeon in North, in North London. Mm. So a lot of people have a memory of it. And our point was that no one makes these films anymore. So when we showed The Tricycle Thief, which is a children's adventure story, the children, which I know of you know, now, they're blown away by it because they don't see that anymore. You don't see British children on cinema, in a cinema. And we don't show it to be put on the web. It's, it's to be shown theatrically. We're, going to, we're showing it ourselves, so we've been screening it. So you've been screening it as part of Stowe Film Lounge, and so therefore it's, it's had quite of a limited release, I guess, showing in, uh, 
in around East London and stuff. So has it yeah. has it ventured anywhere else yet? Is the plan? Well, to... we've started to take it to schools now. We've done okay. school screenings. We did one about three weeks ago when we went in there with our equipment, put up the screen. We've got our own you know projector and equipment and sound system, and then we had popcorn and you know nice healthy drinks. And we had about two hundred kids came in, and they were blown away by it because again. I remember as a kid, we'd get the projector out in the 1970s and watch a film. It was that experience mm. after school. And we sold tickets, always sold tickets. You got to charge something for it. And the kids loved it. They bought programs and uh, we're doing more school screenings. And the idea is that we'll take it around the country, near to London initially, because it's 45 minutes. You can easily do, you know, two mm. screenings in an afternoon. And, and at the moment, you know, we're going to keep it off the internet. It's meant to be a film you go and watch because the kids, again, when they've seen even the trailer alongside our other screenings, they're like, what's that, what's that? Mm. You forget the power of something you haven't seen for a long time. Now, the advice in TV and film is what never worked with animals and children. Um, you made a film that's largely, the whole cast is more or less Pretty much, children. Yeah. So how did you find that as a director? Well, first of all, I've got children, yeah. so it's great to find the talent. <laughs> and, they, and they do actually rib me on how little they got paid, but you know, people you know, were looked after... I thought it was easy, actually. I've always worked with kids. Most of my work as a filmmaker has been, I've realised that recently, I've made a lot of films with kids. Mm. And in fact, when I started as a runner on an Ingmar Bergman-produced promo, the reason I got promoted on the day was that I was really good with the kids who were kids from uh, uh, from um, what was Yugoslavia. Uh, they were like kids who were war damaged. And, wow. and, and they hadn't judged that the kids might be freaked out. And I'm like, wait a minute. And I just realised that someone needed to sort of look after the kids. So I've never had a problem with working with children and, since then, a lot of my stories that I filmed had been about children. And in fact, one of my features, which is you know, close to going forward, is, is about a kid witnessing a crime. Ah, oh, right, OK. Well, we'll uh, hopefully get you back on for that when the yeah. time to talk about it. Alan Parker said, Sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Right then, let's go, go back in time over the uh, your five great British um, horror film choices. Um, the rules are simple. I'll repeat them for your benefit and the listener's benefit in case it's the first time they've come across this show. Um, each... Each... Um, each film gets five minutes. There are five films, obviously five great British horror films. Um, there is a um, there is an alarm that will sound when the five minutes are up, and it sounds like this. <laughs> so when uh, Edgar Broughton Band do shout out "Demons Out," that's our cue to move on to the next film. Um, you've given me your five already, Marcus. So we're going to do them in reverse date order, oldest to newest. And hopefully we'll learn a bit about why these films are interesting, but also a bit about your personal biography as a as a film watcher. Does that sound okay to you? Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds perfect. Okay, so right then, we're going to jump into 1965 and Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Do you want to give us an uh, like when you first saw this or how well, you saw it? I was born in the 60s, so I'm a child of the 70s. Is that my viewing experience of film was actually denied because we had no cinema in my town. The cinema closed down in 73, so anything like a film, it was just. It was something that was like lost. This is like in sharp contrast to a previous guest and a mutual friend. Yeah, well, Pat, 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 I really similar age, probably a little bit younger, not much. But Pat's experience was he had a cinema. Yeah. So I had no cinema. So film, 
and horror films were things you'd glimpse in like Weekend Magazine or Nationwide. Okay. And uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness came to mind because obviously like you know, we talked before about I could name other horror films that are canon. Yeah. But that was the first horror film I ever saw and I didn't I wasn't meant to see it. And if you know the film, it begins like a Bond film. It, it begins with the end of horror of Dracula, as they call it, where Peter Cushing as Van Helsing is fighting Christopher Lee. Right. Which is a very famous horror moment. And that's the beginning of the film. And then I'm kind of sent to bed because <laughs> I'm I'm like seven years old. Yeah. I'm not meant to watch it. So I don't actually watch it in nineteen seventy four when it's on. But I see the first few minutes. And my whole life as a kid was spent watching the beginning of The Haunting and then being told to go to bed, watching the beginning of Asylum or something. Mm. So when I finally saw it a year later, this is why I really love the film. It's got pretty much everything about Hammer film in it that you would love. Like? Well, it's got all the people in there you expect. It's got the comedy turn. It's got the, it's got the right music, you know, mm. where, the, where the composers clearly compose it around the title. Mm. So Dracula, Prince of Darkness. <laughs> it's got Christopher Lee, who again doesn't appear in the film until like 50 minutes. Wow. Which is very similar to Brides of Dracula I could have chosen where Peter Cushing appears late. And you forget that these films are very tight. It's Terence Fisher, who most people would acknowledge. He is Mr. Hammer, isn't he? Yeah, and he's, he's, I mean, he's a director that I love because it's so economical under pressure. I was going to say, what is it about him that made him the go-to guy for, for so much well, Hammer, Hammer I've had horror? this theory for a while because I've been lucky enough to know some people that worked on Hammer films as like actors, people yeah. like Brooke Williams, who was in Plague of the Zombies, and Jonathan Cecil. It was a job. It was a job. He was somebody at the end of the day went home to have roast beef in Yorkshire pudding with his wife in probably near Pinewood or wherever it was, or Bray, and it was a job. But he happened to land in, in horror, where from his own life experience, I think he was a very sort of Christian scientist as a kid, he was a very moral person how he did these films. They were very distant, very restrained. So mm. when you watched them, you wouldn't know they had no time to shoot them, and they are shooting them back-to-back. -back. So that film, I think, was matched up with Rasputin. Same locations, same cast. And I think in the morning, they're filming one film, and the afternoon, they're filming another so what I love about it is that they're quite elegant under pressure. They're not filmed handheld running around. They're very elegant films. So as a filmmaker, there's a lot to admire in the way that he makes wide shots really sinister. Like There's a scene in it famously where someone's hung over a coffin and cut open and right. into the coffin. But it's done like a religious ritual. Very economical, very mysterious. And that's why I think he's the best. It's interesting because I'm at home, I was not surprised this has come up a lot, but I've not had a director on who could tell me sort of what it is about him that means they come back for more. But the idea... So I guess in a way, he, he remained cinematic but worked like he was in TV. Yeah, and you look at it, again, if you're into directing, he crosses the line when he has to. Very clever use of... I mean, Michael Reeves famously was often held up as being the opposite Terence Fisher, but I think Michael Reeves really liked Terence Fisher because he knew that he was a really good jobbing director. When he started directing Hammer horror films, he was 54 Terence Fisher. He'd really been around a long time making mm. a lot of films which are worth digging out. But you know his films are the one people rave about. There's the Devil Rides Out, Bride mm. of Dracula. They are they are the you know Frankenstein must be destroyed. But the reason I love this one is that it's the best Hammer film I remember as a kid watching. The first one I ever watched, and it's got everything in it you can watch. It's even got Peter Cushing in the beginning sequence. Because mm. you don't really get in a Hammer film everyone you want like Bride of Dracula. There's no Christopher Lee, but this one's got everything you want. It's, it's even got the sort of voluptuous woman who's knocking at the window, which Salem's Lot later references. So. It's a film I watched again recently for this, and what blew me away was it, it is a really good horror movie. It's a great hammer horror movie. And although there are other films people rave about more for good reason, it's the one that I personally remember watching. And again, I remember watching the beginning and being told to go to bed and a year later seeing it properly. What do you think is the kind of per hardy perennial about Dracula as a horror icon? 
Well, it's something that that book, The Heritage of Horror, if you haven't read it, David Prairie, you you know, people should enjoy seeing it. I found a copy of it 25 years ago before it was, it was reprinted. Yeah. British horror, gothic horror, is a British invention. I mean, horror is a British invention, as the Western is American. Mm. So it's out of our own culture. Frankenstein and Dracula, they're perennial. And it doesn't matter how, how good you do a Dracula film, it's always worth watching a Dracula film. That's what I realised with, you know, the Dracula movies that, you know, apart from Coppola's film, which I'm not that mad on, but generally, you know, mm. they're such good characters like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, it's interesting because it? gothic is atypically um, British, but it's been adopted. Say you get things like American Gothic. And... Oh, there we go. There's Edgar sort of stopping us. And then we're gonna we're gonna leap forward into the next decade for well, you. Well, no, it's it's actually the same decade. Well, the same decade he watched it, but yeah, yeah, he, but, the, yeah, but yet um, so we're gonna do uh, Frankenstein: The True Story, which is a uh, which is a new one on me. So do you want to tell us a bit about what that, what's behind that choice? Well, when you said to me, do five great horror movies, I did feel the pressure, for good reason, which Friday General, Wicker Man, but I thought, actually, looking back, what do I remember watching? Now, this is a TV film that was made in Britain with British mm. actors like James Mason and Leonard White and David McCallum, Jane Seymour, and Michael Sarazin as the creature. Mm. And it crept up on my family at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night in 1975, right. over Christmas, yeah. and we started watching it and it's three hours long, and it's now being reevaluated as one of the great. I've never seen it. I'm just looking at well, James Mason. And, three and, hours. And thanks to you, I've now ordered, <laughs> ordered the Little Shop of Horrors magazine about it because right. I realised that actually, as much as I love the other films we mentioned earlier, yeah. I saw this when it was basically in its moment. Yeah. And it was three hours long. And there's a scene in the film which I won't tell you. you haven't seen it. Yeah. Which is one of the great horror scenes of. British gothic horror making. Okay, the American director, mm. but it's filmed in Britain. It's a largely British cast, mm. and bits of it are very TV movie. But the moments where it is shocking and horrific, because horror is often that moment of marvel, isn't it? Mm. Like in Dracula: Into Darkness, it's the gutting of the body over the thing, uh, over the coffin. Mm. In this film, that there's a scene which I think is unrivaled in any other horror movie ever made. You're wetting me up, it's out here, and, and it's worth checking out. Unfortunately, you can't go back to 1975 and watch it in situ. Because you can see it a little bit, it feels a bit dated, but it's got this moments, there's moments of it of sadness and beauty. And I think people like Mark Gates have written about it, comparing it to being, you know, possibly for good reason, almost like a sort of you know a, a gay Frankenstein in that sense. It's about male relationships, but it's also oh, really? testimony to how good Frankenstein is as a story. Is that an after? Do you think is that something we've we've imposed on it after the fact? This was, do you, or do you think this was in the minds of the no, people? No, I remember watching at the time. A lot of it is about beauty. Okay, it's about beauty and how, and how beauty can be corrupt. And how ugliness can be more beautiful, and that's what again, I I don't think it holds up as well as Dracula: Prince of Darkness as a film, but mm. as a film to have seen and experienced, it was a phenomenal film. And again, my generation were denied this because there was only three channels. We had no internet, there's no video, no DVD. If you miss it, you miss it. And the next day at school, we all would have talked about it, acted it out. We all acted out the scenes from that program in the playground. You know, I mean, for for the for the younger listener, imagining this time where you can't just watch it when you want. What is it? What what what's your memory of being a kid devout? Going like literally, you're devouring this because you're kind of like this is my opportunity to watch it because I can't I can't go back in. Well, I, I feel very lucky because I was I was I was young in the time when the album was really big. Mm. I was young in the time when television was really big, and all the films that were appearing on tele television as a kid were films that were allowed to be shown finally. So things like The Wild Bunch were appearing on television in the seventies. So I was okay. lucky that we were being given it, but equally. You'd often miss these things, and it would really upset you. You have to wait two years. <laughs> I remember coming home one day, and somebody put Jason the Argonauts on the afternoon because they cancelled the golf. Yeah, and I was furious because 
I've got to wait two years to see it. So that's what I like about it, was you were being denied it. So even like a thing like Nationwide, you see a clip of Christopher Lee. Yeah. That would see you through for months. You couldn't see it, meant that it was a big deal. And plus, as I said, there was no cinema on my time. I was 20 miles from the cinema. So that was a really big part of growing up at that time, was that it was hard to see it. So when you saw it, it blew your mind. So what, what were you, with, with, with that distance from the cinema, so your freedom to watch stuff was very much governed by what the TV was showing. How did that sort of, how do you think that's developed your understanding and love of film? Well, it comes back to the magazine that I bought, the House of Hammer magazine. Was that okay. When that turned up, issue 11 there in my local newsagents, my mind was blown. I didn't know these magazines existed. Yeah. Was that it makes you value it, I think. It makes you value it more and more, so much so that I think I'm actually a fan of reading about horror as much as I am about watching horror. No, I, I can I, I can agree with you on that front. That's something Which is I... why now I've, you know, I'm less into horror than I was, but doing this has been really emotional for me mm. so I realised how important it was to have discovered horror as a kid and when kids at school had horror on their crisp packets that was really yeah. exciting when kids had like bubblegum cards so that's what it's given me I think it gave me a value we'll put some pictures on when we put this this podcast up on the uh, on the Britflix website but Zoltan Hound of Dracula I remember I remember that being trailed on TV and being a person who was scared of dogs the idea of a vampire dog was was terrifying but that's what I liked about these comics as well, was that you'd read mm. these comics, House of Hammer, and I got the whole set, it took me about 20 years, yeah. and they would have the movie adaptation of the film. So often I would see the movie adaptation before I saw the film. So my relationship with this is unlike now, you can't Google it then, yeah. you have to wait. And often you'd miss it, and that was really important. You know? So what was what what became like the um, the film to find, in terms of the, the, what you read about here, it took you a long time. Oh, it was before... certainly, it was Witchfinder General. Really? Yeah, because like, you can see here, the next issue, there it is, being talked about. Oh, okay. And what year is this magazine? This is 1977. Right, okay, so it's 1977, with the magazine sort of glorifying, and it's interesting, because 76 was the ghoul from Hammer, Yeah. and people are... It wasn't Hammer, that was Amicus. Was it Amicus, yeah. that? Well, it was kind of like, oh, sorry, but it was almost... It was con- in the style of it, yeah. Yeah, but it was almost considered a kind of bookend of what had been a halcyon period for horror. You yeah. had the Hammer House Horror TV series in 1980. 1980, yeah. But I think that for filmmaking in a film industry, the flogging of the adventures of and the carry-on lot had meant that the eye maybe had got taken on the ball and while there's some good stuff in there. Well, also Hammer ended up making carry-on films anyway. Yeah, of course. It made the most money. I mean, Theatre of Blood is the last great British film of that period, which is why they kill off all the comedian actors. It's a perfect it's metaphor for the end of yes. the year, you know. Right then, we're well, moving on. Our next selection in your five great British horror films is um, Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. Now, I chose that because the other two films, the first film, I'm at primary school. Yeah. Second film, I'm at middle school. Mm. I'm starting big school, upper school. I'm 13 years old. And I didn't see Alien until about five years later, but I saw the poster in the window of a newsagent. Really? And it blew my mind again, because, again, this is about being denied things. The poster was like a monster mag, fold out, movie tie-in we'd had Star Wars we'd had Ember Strikes Back so we're getting a bit greedy about these big American movies and suddenly on the wall rather than being Superman is a fold-out poster of the interior of the the ship they find and that image again it blew my mind the same way that seeing Boris Karloff on Nationwide in a black and white clip blew my mind the same way that seeing Christopher Lee in a magazine so that's what it was about it was about not seeing it and then reading about it and knowing I couldn't go and see it, I was 13, there was no mm. one to see Alien. And also, we're 20 miles from Cambridge, 20 miles from Barry Edmonds, 20 miles from anywhere. So again, I'm having to wait years before... I are you seeing it on TV or are you seeing it on video at that point? I, then? I, I didn't see it on video until about probably six years later. 
So okay. I haven't seen Alien because the videos didn't come out until like 81, 82. So you've had you've had the uh, the amuse bouche, as it were, all yeah. the paraphernalia. So when you sit down to watch this film, what what's your tiny young mind thinking? Well, first of all, it holds up, and only recently with Stowe Film Lounge, which I run with my friend, we showed Alien, and mm. I realised it is one of the great films of all time. Mm. And what I loved about it was the humanity of all the characters. That they're people like you and me who are there just doing a job, who are middle-aged people that aren't young people being murdered for pleasure. Mm. They're really quite nice people being killed, like almost like in an M.R. James film, for no reason other than they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. No yeah, one's yeah. stolen any money, mm. no one's committed any crime, no one's got any backstory about how they've been bad to their children other than Aliens 2 we find out. Well if you, you know? think about it, Aliens sort of so far of its time the idea that uh, an AI has took like you say innocent sinless people just chosen you yeah yeah, and that's what I, so when we showed it recently I've shown my 13 year old son Alien yeah and he loved it and what was amazing was he knew unfortunately because all the memes uh, you know about the bursting stomach thing yeah. he didn't know the Ian Holm twist which really got him excited oh. so I realised that actually again as much as I love the other film we can talk about, which mm. are known, Alien, I think, is one of the great British horror films of all time. The fact that it spawned, you know, a fairly weakening lesser, you know, sequels. Mm. But as a film to watch, it's perfect actually. And we showed it recently with an audience at Film Lounge, and people loved it. People had never seen it before in cinema, and I would say to anyone with these films, you haven't seen them till you've watched them on a big screen. I was going to really, say, let's really have. I was going to say, let's talk yeah. about that then, because I think that's an important part of what you do with Stowe Filmland and just generally why we fall in love with cinema. It's the being engulfed and, and the claustrophobia. Yeah, and it's film. also it's being with other people. Mm. And also we always have an intermission yeah. in our film. So you get a moment when like, like when we showed Get Out a couple of years ago, a fire alarm happened and nobody realised. <laughs> because it was so engrossed in the film. We yeah. assumed, I assumed it was a diagenic sound effect in the movie. Yeah. And we all stood up when we announced the fire alarm to exit yeah. the fire alarm was then ended and it was like hypnotism we're back in the film and it was the moment in the film when he sees the box of photographs in the room okay and wow. it was like I thought oh, that's really clever it was a fire alarm sound so that's what I realised when you show a film like this if everyone's engrossed in it mm. that's why again this has reignited my love for horror doing this because I'd forgotten that when horror is good mm. it is the most cinematic genre yeah because I remember I went to your screening of A Quiet Place which I know there's been there's a film that you can easily pull apart if you really want to get like what what's happening in the movie, but if you sit in a room with people being silent in the dark, it's a brilliant it's horror perfect. film. Well, there was someone on the bar that I remember. He was like, "Let's get goodbye," and that's what you that feeling of appreciating mm. film is the thing that I think this is all about for me. It's like mm. I couldn't see it, and when I saw Alien, it could have been a disappointment, but it wasn't a disappointment, and that's why showing it to my son, which maybe I wouldn't have done if I was thirteen then, but he loved it because it has a. These films, I think, that they have something about them beyond being horrific. Yeah. There's something else going on. That's why generally horror films that have got older have left me a little bit because I'm mm. a bit more repulsed by them. But these films that I've loved, I feel there's a kind of dignity in them. Well, well the, vi the, vis you, it, the film earns its visceralness, for want of a better word, um, because you're, you're with them on the spaceship in the middle of nowhere because they're in space. It's like they're not they're not just in a forest and you know with a bit of a ramble they'll be in civilization again. Yeah. They're disconnected and they're disconnected with something that they not Yeah, you know. and also and also when they die, they're really scared. Mm, they're that's not screaming, true, yeah. they're really actually scared the way that you would be scared. And Which is a projection of the audience. That's right, and that's why I think it's such an amazing film because the humanity of the casting in that is just beautiful. Mm. <laughs>
I'm turning that on, man. You're getting, you're getting your five minutes down. Right, then we're going to, we're going to, this is, a, this is, I mean, all three have been first, you'd be surprised to know. Okay, uh, good. Uh, in terms of the five, and this Well, one, I felt duty bound, if I was hearing it, if anyone listening to it, to not go through the list where everyone knows. Yeah, which we can so, go to BFI's website. Yeah, and, and, and not to fake it, but these are the films I remember being quite excited by. Yeah, and I think, I think what's important to you, subjectively speaking, is better than what you think is Mr. Cool from Cool Street. Yeah. I mean, we can all we can all lord over what's cinematically the best things in well, It's Howard great. Hawks, isn't it? Do you like it? That's yeah. all that matters. Do you like it? Yeah, I, I really like it. Exactly. So, talking of which, we're going to move to 1989 now, um, the year I was 18, um, and Woman in Black, the TV version, which I must confess I've never seen. Well, I was in my 20s, and I thought horror had left me, and it was Christmas Eve, 1989. I'm sitting there watching what I think will be, again, an 8 o'clock <coughs> cosy adaptation I've always known about M.I. James. I'm from East Anglia, so I'm 20 miles from where, from Bury St. Edmunds, from mm. Cambridge, and my sister lives near Great Livermere, where he's from. I went. I used to play at Borley Rectory as a kid and play with the Stones, which I kept them probably on eBay now, as you probably talk. And also, which Witchfinder General is Lavenham near me. So I've grown up in a place where I'm actually embedded in that culture. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You, you are folk horror. So to, <laughs> so to look at things that are set in the landscape, that's where I used to play. That's where I used mm. to play. Kill rabbits, gut rabbits, that was what I did as a kid. Anyway, mm. So I've come home like mid-twenties, almost I've moved on, I'm probably into the Stone Roses, wherever it is, mm. and I watched this, and it was a terrifying experience. And the people I've met since in the film business, some of the producers I know, remember watching it, and there are in that, there's a couple of scenes in that where they cut to a commercial break, which was the best use of a commercial break I've ever had in my life, was that we sat there in the, in the front room, me and my sister and my mum and my dad, and we were absolutely terrified. Yeah. They cut to a commercial break. And that's what blew me away, was it reacquainted with me with the power of horror mm. as entertainment for everyone, rather than a late-night thing to watch at the Scala Cinema, yeah. which is a bit kinky and a bit funny. It was so sincere. And other people talk about that not being the best version. It was written by Nigel Neal, who did quite a mess in the pit. Of course, yeah, yeah. But something in the energy of that. And recently I became friendly with one of the actors who was in it, and I haven't yet asked her about it. But what I love about it Who's is... Who's that? Oh, Claire Holman, that we, sh we showed one of her films recently, mm. uh, Film Edge. But I want to talk to her about... To, you know, when she was making it, did you have any idea? Because that film in it has got something quite evil in that film. There's something quite odd in that film. There's an energy in that film, which I think great horror. I think Alien has it as well. These films have something in them that is really transcends the execution of just filming and people acting. And that was a, a stunning sort of adaptation, which has now been remade by Hammer. It's a stage play, it's in the stage play, and it's, and it's a very good book, but it's in the M.R. James tradition, you know, mm. which, again, I was well-versed in that growing up in that. That, that that landscape, you know. Yeah, because it's um, as, as 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 stories go, it's it's that thing about the arrogance of the of the living, I suppose, which is an arrogance of humanity, which is we're just welcome to go wherever we want, and obviously the idea of a spectre that doesn't want you. Yeah, and also uh, we don't just leave, do we? We kind of the the, the, and the also drama comes from the spectre in the M.I. James stories and in that episode, which is very M.I. James. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, it's not Henry James. M.I. James. The ghost appears in daylight, mm. and it does it in a warrant of curious. It's on the hill looking at him. In this, it's standing there, coming towards you, mm. and that is genius because it's not—it's not a gothic house necessarily. Yeah, it's—it's it's a daylight apparition, and that was what was again was so chilling, and the and the moment of horror, which might have been Nigel Neal's invention, because the book is very different. Yeah, and the stage is very different. But what I think it gets right is that sheer idea of, like, if you get told some bad news. You remember the cup of tea you're drinking. Mm. It has that feeling of really weird, banal detail, but also 
is explicitly done simply. What's with the... I mean, we don't have it anymore. This culture of um, the ghost story at Christmas. It's a, it, Obviously, there's a... There's a whole series of them, you know, under that banner, and obviously this this fits in if you were sitting there yeah, to watch I, it at I Christmas. Think, I think this was an ITV one, which doesn't mean it wasn't part of that canon. But yeah. I just think that maybe people try and overanalyze the ghost story at Christmas. I think that, that they remade their whistle on come to you recently with John Hurt, mm. the late John Hurt, and it was all about preloading his guilt for his wife. The point of those stories for me is they're inexplicable. You've been chosen for no reason other than you've been chosen. And that was what those, like, even The Signal Man, if you've seen that Charles Dickens, mm. watched that Christmas. Yeah, 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 seen Seeing that as a kid. There's something brutal about those endings. They they really make you feel like, like life, like being told a friend of yours has been hurt in a car accident. Mm. It has that brutality without any reason why he's been chosen. And that's what I think they channel into. And at Christmas time, you're feeling the most coziest. So that day particularly, it's Christmas Eve, one of my favourite days of the year. No, this is you know, what, this I've is got what the I cheese like. and the beer, and I've got, you know, sitting around by the fire. Yeah. And it was the perfect contrast. So I think that was one of the perfect screenings, you know. So but sitting there with your parents, then, what's that experience like watching a film? Well, my dad was very important in my horror education. He'd always tell me he's a builder, like in the morning, he's going off to work, what he watched last night. And he was yeah. always coming home from houses. He was, you know, my dad's a builder as well, pulling out an old medieval cottage and finding a cat buried up with some <laughs> weird little bits and pieces. So. Yeah. Again, I was swimming in that landscape of, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we were all we were all sat there, terrified when the commercial break. I think it was the second commercial break, and it's, it's unfortunately you can't watch it with the commercial breaks because it's like an intermission. It's like now go make a cup of tea, but I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, although we had a video, we weren't even videoing it, which is kind of bonkers. You're pausing because you can see the clock, can't you? I can see the clock now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hide that from him. There's a. Uh, Edgar Broughton bringing us to a close on that one. And we've got your final choice, and we're going to jump into the 21st century now with uh, Jonathan Glazer's uh, Under the Skin. Do you want to? I mean, this is a culturally now we've torn ourselves apart from the first four in terms of uh, what this is, or maybe we haven't. If you want to well, I explain felt, your reason I for felt the choice, I felt a bit obligated being someone that runs a, runs a cinema and is making films now to have a film that's recent. Mm -hmm. And you know, with Slow Film Manage, we did show Under the Skin, Adam Pearson on the actors in it, yeah. Candle do a QA. So I've never seen it before. I watched it with Adam next to me, mm -hmm. which was uh, you were that. No, I didn't come to anyway, that one. No, no. It was a great screening, and then we did a QA with him afterwards, which is brilliant. And also we did at the same time Wicker Man with Robin Hardy. But I thought to myself, actually, Under the Skin is a recent film. Mm. And what blew me away about that are the moments of horror in that are unlike any other moments of horror I'd ever seen in any other film. Was that I felt genuinely dislocated. And funny enough, Wicker Man director Robin Hardy, who you know I got to know a little bit at the time, was also a commercials director, as is yeah. Jonathan Glazer. And I loved the film when I, shot, when I watched it. So I didn't think I was going to like it. I thought I'd be a bit quite annoyed by it. I'm quite judgmental before I watch things. And what really struck me was... I felt so immersed in it that all of the scenes in it, they come back to me the way that maybe scenes in great great films come to me, like mm. Kurosawa. So that's why I think it was a great horror film, was that I felt a sense of dislocation. And there are moments of horror in it that are just spectacularly beautiful mm. and terrifying at the same time. And I think of all the recent British films that we could have talked about, which you probably have done on your podcast, I like it because it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not pornographic, although she's nude in it. There's something can elevate, and I guess as a as a fan of films, I like films that elevate, mm. and that is an elevated horror film where I gather it's not, nothing like the book, is it? You, you read the book, I guess. Mm. yeah, yeah, the book's much more. And I'm sure the journey to make it was very expensive, and it went loads of different turns. But having Adam there, who was in it, was interesting because again, it was really it was they made it very quickly, mm. running around the streets of. What do you call? What's the condition called? That, that Adam Adam. I, I don't know. It's, it's some kind of. 
neuralgia sort of yeah. thing. So, so the interesting thing about Under the Skin, for those that haven't seen it, Adam, Adam's face is that kind of um, uh, just sort of disfigured, the, the face is sort of uh, enlarged and stuff in places yeah. to make it disproportionate. And, and his twin brother has the same illness but doesn't have any facial Oh, okay. Issues, yeah. So okay. Adam came along. So watching it, but with but, him, but it's just interesting, isn't it, for that film that he is he is the point at which our alien, played by Scarlett, yeah. begins to discover her own humanity, and it's through him, not through she, her sympathy to him, which is arguably people in normal day life might be judgmental towards Adam if they saw him because he's not normal in inverted commas. And again, I don't know how Under the Skin would work if you watched it on your iPad or at home on your big telly because it's not. It was at watching other people, and there was a feeling of, I think it sold out, we had 100 people there. It was a brilliant screening, and Arthur was talking to him about it. All the questions come from the audience, and the best bit question for me was that, you know, in a, he's got a cameo in it. He was talking about one little scene when they show his hands grabbing his, pinching himself. Mm. And that shot was, of course, grabbed at three in the morning when he didn't realise. So it is a film that's made within a budget. It's made mm. very quickly, but it's very elegant. It's, it's visionary. And as you know, you know, British horrors had since probably the early sort of noughties a, a bit of a revival. But I think it fits in with your model of what you were talking about earlier in the sense, because it's not the people who are victims to Scarlett Johansson's alien mission yeah, and are not deserving. No, no, then there's no, no sin in the film, is there? There's... Well, there was a bit of me wanted to talk about Hellraiser, but in a way, he's completely asking for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't mind that, because in Dracula Prince of Darkness, they're asking for it a little bit, they're overpunished. But horror for me is about that M.I. James idea of that You've been chosen for no reason other than horrors like that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And that has always chilled me as a kid because you hear stories about people happening, you know, and, and also, you know, having got children myself, I'm always turning the radio off because they're talking about... Well, I'm going to say, as a father, then, the, the scene of the baby left on the shore... Well, and I is, gather... It's phenomenal. Adam said about when they filmed it, the crew were upset the next night. Really? Because the baby had to be left on the shore. It was all very managed, but even so... That's the beauty of that film. It has that inexplicable, almost like an Ingmar Bergman horror film, oh, yeah, yeah. which does exist, as you know. Yeah. It's a visual film that connects with you. And that is the point of horror. It's not to be didactic, in my opinion, and say, oh, it's because of this. It's the inexplicableness of horror, mm. which is why you know, I'd, I'd recommend reading anything like James M. Cain. He does that very well. He, he, you know, he lures you in a sense of, of, of relaxation and then hits you with a scene. And with that film, I think particularly, I have no idea how it was written, but all those moments of horror, like in the oil, which is very much like Get Out, mm. you'll watch it and you're immersed in it. Yeah, because because in a sense, cinema's always best when it uh, when it's uh, when you're discussing its moments, as it were. Yeah, and those moments are deserving because of the way they make you feel by the t when the time they happen, as opposed to uh, a sort of cheap trick of I'll make you jump or I'll gross you out. Yeah, you know they're 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 easily done, but they don't serve much purpose beyond there's a burger, eat it. <laughs> yeah, and and again, I I, I like American movies, mm. but I realise I'd rather watch a British film now more than ever, and I'm yearning for good British cinema because I think that balance of restraint is what I love about British cinema is that they don't go whole hog, and when they do, they really go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a suitable point to finish on. Um, well, I think, I mean, let's let's recount recap on your five choices. We've got Dracula, Prince of Darkness, 1965. We've got Frankenstein, The True Story, 1973. We've got Alien, 79. We've got Woman in Black, the TV version from 1989. And we've got Under the Skin from, I think, 2000 and... I'm going to say 14. I, I, think, I think 2015, maybe, yeah. Um, and it was it was great going down that sort of memory lane with you. And, a, and a, you've already kind of explained your thing while we've been talking, this idea of you... Your, your turn for horror. There's no logic for this. Yeah. You, you kind of... 
I didn't ask to be into horror. Horror chose me as a kid. Mm. I wasn't... I was the generation which is gone when you'd catch the beginning of something, like, like the start of The Haunting, catching the start of that and being sent to bed and it would percolate. Yeah. And that's what I miss today is no one's percolating anymore. We've all got to percolate, I think. Yeah, because we... we, we because everything's on tap, we we can choose to watch it literally at our own convenience whenever we want now, can't we? Yeah, There's we'd, no... have, we'd have to wait, you know. And I know it's been talked about a lot, but I think like even with American trailers, I missed I missed British trailers. Mm. The sense of not showing everything, you know. I like I like that. So that's 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 why horror is important to me because it, it 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 sort of kickstarted something in me that was probably always there from when I grew up. Yeah, because because I mean, it's interesting. You, 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 especially where you grew up is almost like a kind of it's it's like an unofficial film backdrop to British horror in a sense, isn't it? That idea of my you, the, the the history of the Witchfinder generals, really not the film, but you know, I knew Vincent Price stayed in various Evans near us, and there was pictures of them filming in Lavenham and yeah. you know, Mr. James's house where he lived and Cambridge. We were walking, and you know, even my dad is still around. You know, he used to make the car break down. And pretend it had broken down or something in the woods. You, you were so to watch it on television felt completely suitable. It was just, yeah. You were living in that world, you know. Yeah, there's. A, I mean, not to get too dewy-eyed and nostalgic, but there is there is something about savouring what you've got as opposed to a diaspora of choice that just goes on endlessly. So yeah. therefore, if you want to watch, uh, if you've got a Netflix subscription or an, and an Amazon subscription and a Shudder subscription and a Curzon on demand and a BFI player and an iPlayer. And then you've got if you if you're old enough to have bought any physical product, you've got your own library of stuff. In the end, there's like you, you, you're right. It's, it sort of it becomes it, it, as much as there's a, a lot of it. It, it kind of becomes some of it becomes worthless. Well, which you, is, it starts to become pressure. You know, like someone said that about American cooking, the greatest invention in American cooking it is the menu. And I don't think having a menu is a great thing. You want to have a limited choice. You want someone to say to you what's good to watch. Yeah. Whereas now you have this. You can spend hours. You, you can spend an hour looking. Mm. You could watch a film in that time. You know? Yeah. So back then, it was the opposite. I, I couldn't watch it. You couldn't see it, and when you did see it, it blew you away. So like with Alien, that was a way. You know, that's mm. what. You can't recreate that, but if it's possible to deny yourself, you'll be surprised at how much more you can enjoy it. I think. Brilliant. Well, look. Thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Sure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Thank you.